don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 24, and today we are revisiting the films of Jeff Nichols and in talking about 2012's Mud, which we're, we're both big fans of. Yeah. Um, so we, we talked about Take Shelter a while ago, um, and Mud is a a very different movie. Um, very. But it has I'm, some... I'm really glad we didn't do like a Nichols all-tour theory thing because, because, first of all, Take Shelter deserved its own hour and a half. And, like you said, these movies are completely different. Yeah, but there are, I guess, a few, like, stylistic things, especially, I think, with the way that he writes it, since he wrote and directed both of them, Mm -hmm. um, that that connect them a little bit. But we have another repeat offender, and that is uh, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, yeah. Uh, And Michael Shannon. Yeah, and Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, who, I think I mentioned this on the Take Shelter episode, is like, Jeff Nichols's muse. He's in every one of his movies. He stars yeah. in two and two. And some something I looked up uh, before before uh, uh, we started talking is uh, the cinematographer, which I'm sure we'll have some things to say about. Uh, he has uh, shot all of Jeff Nichols's films, starting with Shotgun Stories. And that's really see. I, I knew like I knew that we were going to be talking about him quite a bit, and I, I shouldn't have written down his name because I don't remember it. Adam Stone was his Adam name. Stone. Uh, I'm glad it's an easy to remember name. So yeah. that's interesting that you say that because I've actually seen not every one of his movies because I still need to watch Midnight Special and Loving, but I've seen Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter and Mud. Um, and there's definitely like a evolution that takes place among those three. Mm-hmm. But they all kind of have that same, they'll have shots. Uh, something about like daytime outdoor shots that he does really well um, yeah but they could be kind of boring but he so we had like all the shots in curtis's backyard and take shelter mm-hmm. and in this we have like the shots of the boat and the shots on the river and all that sort of stuff um so it's just uh yeah i i think he did a good job adam stone <laughs> with the cinematography has some really beautiful shots i've actually seen some people um compare mud favorably to some Terrence Malick-like stuff. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say that because uh, I think Ebert, Roger Ebert's review of Mud, he made a, a couple comparisons with Malick. Yeah, maybe that's where I saw it. Uh, but yeah. it w- Mud was well-reviewed. It, it did make a, a modest profit. Didn't really win much, but it did win the Robert Altman Award at the Spirit Awards. Mm-hmm which is given to an ensemble cast director and casting director. Hmm. So award that's given for good casting, I guess. Yeah. And, and McConaughey crushes it. This was part of his run. You know, we talked about it, I think with interstellar where he had uh, back to back to back to back performances that were just kind of, um, unusually good he's he's always been a you know a decent actor um but he really at this point in his career took it to a a different you know to a to a level we weren't used to seeing with uh with dallas buyers club and the first season of true detective and 
uh, and you know, we had a lot of negative things to say about Interstellar, but the acting wasn't really one of those negative things. Um, and I feel like there's one more, well, mud and, uh, maybe there's one more thing I'm forgetting, but, uh, he elevated himself for sure. Uh, and, and mud was a big part of that. Yeah. And so the rest of the cast, like rounding this out, um, cause it's not a bunch of like well-received unknowns. Uh, so you have Reith, Reith, <laughs> Reese Witherspoon, uh, as Reith uh, Witherspoon, <laughs> as, uh, Juniper. Um, you have Michael Shannon playing uncle Galen, pretty cool character, uh, Sam <laughs> Shepard. Yeah. Uh, you know, Pulitzer prize winning playwright, um, Playing. the late the late sam shepherd yeah unfortunately i didn't know that he was he was living in kentucky at the time that he died apparently had been oh. for a while hmm. uh pretty cool i guess yeah. even though he he died of als there um sarah paulson i forgot she was in this i did too until she showed up there like right at the beginning when he looks in on the table and they're talking mm-hmm. and then uh ray mckinnon who we talked about a little bit uh, during Take Shelter, because he was in that as well, uh, playing who, the dad. Who is he? Senior, he's the dad. Ray McKinnon, he's the brother in Take Shelter that shows up and like, I'll whip oh, your ass. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Uh, so, he's in that. Uh, he's also in this. And then we have the two young guys, who's uh, Jacob Laughlin, who plays Neckbone. It's a hell of a handle. Yeah. And then uh, Ty Sheridan, who plays Ellis. Yeah, Ty Sheridan uh, was the youngest brother in The Tree of Life, Malick's film. And Sam Shepard also was in a Terrence Malick film, and that was what Ebert was calling attention to uh, in his review of Mud. Yeah, and he does a, you know, we kind of have joked about this a couple times now, but we have watched a lot of movies with good young actors. And yeah, this is another one where both of them uh, do a really good job, and they play yeah, really I, well. Yeah, I feel like the the kid who plays Neckbone is w- without his voice, it would have been a sort of mediocre performance. But his voice is just like perfect. Yeah, and it's uh, it's like perfect it, comic relief. Yeah. So like when, when he uh, when he gives him the gun, you know, when he finally <laughs> yeah. earns his gun, is and McConaughey tells him it doesn't come with bullets. He's like shit. <laughs> and that's kind of his refrain through the whole film is just shit. Yeah. And uh, what my favorite neck bone line I think is when they go to Juniper's room and that's when he like breaks up the fight and the guy punches Ellis and they're leaving. Fish. <laughs> Fish. And he's just uh, and, like when they're going to leave and Ellis is just kind of like forlornly staring at the door and neck bone just goes, "Come on, hard on." <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, he's a. Uh, I mean, really. Uh, well acted by the the two young dudes yeah i'm just kind of looking at uh mcconaughey's filmography to try to remember anything we forgot um surfer it, dude surfer dude tropic thunder oh yeah uh, that was before the lincoln lawyer of course i saw a preview for that i think it was on the dvd of mud the preview for lincoln lawyer it's like i kind of want to watch that oh we also forgot uh, Killer Joe for one, which is is oh, uh, yeah. pretty good. But Magic Mike, yeah, not a bad movie. Uh, the Paperboy. Did you watch the the Paperboy? I did not. I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, that's a weird. It's it's a really 
uh, it's a Lee Daniels movie. It's really strange. It's got uh, Zac Efron and Nicole Kidman playing yeah, this very like it. sexual role. It's a it's a very weird kind of like Southern Gothic kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Anyway, yeah, and it's it's funny because McConaughey will release one, if not several, films every year, or be in several films every year, and they just kind of yeah. float under under the radar. So like he just bomb. he just did that Harmony Corinne uh, yeah the Beach, Beach bomb. bomb or whatever it's called yeah and before that he was in White Boy Rick that kind of <laughs> yeah he was um, one of the leads in the Dark Tower I think oh yeah that one did terribly so yeah he's he he uh, he's still out there he just hasn't really had another big uh big like I'll tell you underrated uh, uh performance of McConaughey's is a film called Frailty yes with Bill Bill Paxton creepy as hell that movie i think bill paxton made that movie um yeah that's like that was like kind of a lower budget early 2000s uh movie that didn't do very well no one really talks about but like i think everyone saw yeah like i i remember getting a lot of like tv preview stuff going on yeah you know like you'd see commercials for it a lot because it was uh you know, had so many kind of well-known actors in it. And yeah. I, I caught it on like HBO or something um, yeah. a couple years after that. And it's, it's a pretty kind of disturbing little movie. Yeah. yeah it's a cool story. It. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, we, <laughs> this is the McConaughey podcast now. <laughs> um, so, so mud, I guess we'll just try to jump into it. And it's kind of funny because I said last week that it's, not our usual kind of fair like it's less directly about some sort of climate change related or environmental related issue um so i guess we we can address that or sort of start there and see what we can find yeah in. yeah we you, when we talked earlier this week i said <clears throat> hey uh what the fuck are we gonna say <laughs> about this movie uh because it's not about it's not directly about uh you know a changing environment. Um, but I do, I do think I, I've been thinking about it a lot because, because I didn't really think it was about, you know, climate change or anything. Uh, but I didn't really know what it was about specifically. Yeah. And, and the more I think about it, the more I, I can see that I think in, in a lot of ways it's about, uh, the way, uh, a sort of boyish tendency uh, that Nichols seems to diagnose in just men leads to um, the the altering uh, for the worse of of the environment of whatever environment these men inhabit. Uh, and in a weird way, uh, in, in some way that we'll get into, the movie seems to be about war and and causes for war um but that maybe that seems a little far-fetched but we can get into that later yeah and it's i don't know it's interesting because it's a movie that it's talking about a lot of kind of broad topics but in very kind of weirdly specific ways so um when we talked earlier this week you were like i don't really know what we're going to talk about it's kind of like just a movie about love uh which is not you know that's it is in a lot of ways right Mm -hmm. Um, but it's about it in very like weirdly specific ways. Like you were saying about like 
being 14 and having a concept of what love is and then having that concept kind of blown to bits and trying to reformulate what you think love is. But also you have that happening on a lot of levels with not just Ellis, but also with mud with Ellis's dad. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's almost, I, I have, again, I haven't worked all this out in my head, but I think that the music, I think a guy named David Wingo did the music. I think there's some, like when you hear the actual like country songs being played, yeah. I think Nichols is totally fucking with us. Uh, and, and I think the end of the movie is fucking with us. When you see Ellis at this like kind of suburban apartment complex. And the kid uh, or the girl kind of walking by and gives him a right. little wave. I think, I think the joke is on us if we believe the kind of heartfelt sentiment of that the music suggests given what we've just seen, you know, in the previous two hours of the movie, uh, that, that, uh, that all these, uh, sort of romantic notions have led to a fucking massacre on the river. Uh, if we still think that that is like a, an endearing, uh, sentiment at the end when Ellis sees the girls, um, I think the joke is on us. And I think he uses music to, to manipulate us, but to consciously manipulate us, like to test how much we can as the, as audience members be manipulated. Yeah. And I think, well, first off about the music, I, I just think about, there are two scenes that marry one another. So there's, they both involve Ellis, like in the truck. Yeah. Uh, so there's like it's near the beginning when he's helping his dad yeah. deliver the fish, and they're playing that kind of, sort of like corny country music. That's like the man's got to sit alone and think about the world, and it's, right. and he's like going past where they like the used boat dealership and like El Toro Mexican restaurant, which is like Nichols kind of nailed that whole like main strip of a very small rural yeah. town feel. Um, but yeah. then later on at the end of the movie, after all this shit's gone down, they're they're going back through it. And it's a very kind of like melancholy kind of, you know, uh, more of like a like a ambient kind of piece as opposed to like a country song. Uh-huh. And uh, it was just something that something I caught. And it's not the case. Well, maybe it's the case for this one because I didn't really look at the soundtrack. But um, Jeff Nichols's brother is the lead singer of. Lucero or Lucero or however you pronounce it, that kind of country rock band. Hmm. So I know he's done some of the music in the past, so maybe that was like one of their songs playing in the movie. Uh, but a scene that kind of, I think, helps support what you were talking about is when uh, Tom, Sam Shepard's character, uh, kind of waves Ellis over and he's talking to him. He's like, you probably think he's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just kind of like, he, he's explaining, you know, mud lies he bends the truth um and you know he's not some big hero he's just some idiot that's in love with this girl he shouldn't be in love with all that sort of stuff right um, but 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 i think i think uh tom blankenship sam shepherd's character is part like, like i kind of feel like uh, ellis mud and tom are all kind of just different age representatives of this same sort of boyish archetype 
because Tom, for all his sort of mystique and wisdom, is still this guy just blowing the heads off people for dubious reasons. Um, uh, yeah, and dubious at best. Dubious at best. And, uh, and I think it's very interesting that you see when you're in Tom's little boathouse, you see these old photographs of him and there's a, a woman, mm-hmm. you know, in the photograph and they're in some city and here's Tom on some dilapidated boat house, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Where's that woman? Why, you know, he used to be in the CIA. Where is she? Where were they? I, I think we're invited to, to see Tom and mud and Ellis as iterations of the set. Like Tom is Ellis when he's an old man. Um, Tom is mud when he's a slightly older man. Uh, they are all representative of this same kind of orientation to, to the world, to women. I, I don't know exactly and it's all, to it, what. And it's kind of backed up with the fact that all of these men, and I would include his father in that, are all yeah. kind of like have a code that they live by, right? And it's ultimately mm-hmm. what kind of fucks them over. So you have Ellis who has this very like romanticized 14-year-old idea of what love is and, uh, you know, asking Mary Pearl or whatever her name was to, to be his girlfriend. And he's very like into the idea of being her boyfriend um, to mm-hmm. the point till it blows up in his face. And even go so far as to just like punch dudes <laughs> to defend her honor or when he thinks he is. Um, and then you scale up and you have his dad and his dad has all these sort of high ideas about the importance of work and, you know, life is work and you have to, you know, earn what you get in this life. And this way of life that we're living is disappearing. You have to struggle to keep it, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then all the way up to like mud who, you know, has all of his, silly bullshit that he does all of his uh superstitions like having the the wolf's eye in the shirt and the the crosses in his heels and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. um and tom seems like he's going to break that and be like the voice of of elder wisdom the old wise man yeah yeah. but then at the end he's just like smoking dudes and you're like what the fuck how is this and then and then he and mud just hit the fucking road yeah which which in a lot of ways I think is is very uh, consistent with what this movie is about. And, and um, there's no way to talk about this movie, especially the beginning, without talking about Huckleberry Finn. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know, that's a, like Nichols has sort of attributed some of his ideas to Mark Twain and the whole uh, kind of image of the Mississippi River that he created. Right. Well, um, and I mean, that first... The, you know, the first sequence is just straight out of Huckleberry Finn where he's like sneaking out of the house to go down the river at night. Um, yeah. And, and, and not only that, it's maybe more to the point. It is to escape this sort of domestic trouble. You know, uh, Huckleberry Finn's always trying to escape, you know, what he calls like the civilizing uh, or like the, what's the ant's name that he's always trying to get away from? Uh, I, don't I can't remember. think of her name. <laughs> I should probably remember that, but I don't. Yeah, I can't either. Anyway, she represents this sort of, you know, civilizing influence and, and, and 
eradicating Huck of, of, of any sort of rambunctious boyishness. And, and so he's trying to get away from that. And, and uh, Ellis is trying to sort of escape this domestic drama between his parents. Um, so we see the river as the escape. And not only that, there's this island that to me sort of functions the same way the place in, uh, uh, where the wild things are does, you know, this kind of, uh, I, I don't know, just this kind of place to run to when, when things get difficult. Go have a, uh, a wild rumpus. Right. Which is, which is where both Ellis and mud go to deal with their, you know, their, their real issues. Yeah. And it even has that, you know, kind of filling at the end when you have Tom and mud and they've successfully got to the Gulf. Right. And it's kind of that kind of like at the end of Huckleberry Finn, where he sort of sets out for the West and is just going to chase the wilderness or, you know, chase being outside of civilization for as far as he can. Um, right. Which is, which is a recurring theme in American lit for sure. Yeah. You, I, I haven't seen it, but I remember taking a class on like, uh, 1860 to 1910 lit and our uh, uh, professor Renfro, Dr. Uh, Miche Renfro was talking about the end of Mad Men and Don Draper just sort of goes full Huckleberry Finn apparently uh, <laughs> and just, you know, hits the road, goes west. Yeah. But going west is, is the sort of American uh, is a trope in American literature. Yeah, and it didn't even stop. Well, it was sort of assumed that once we had manifested our destiny that it wouldn't be as big of a deal anymore, but then you have things like On the Road and like in uh, portrayals like Mad Men and stuff like that where yeah. striking out and driving across country is still seen as this kind of wild and crazy coming-of-age thing that you can do. Right, and then and then, and this is really what my what my master's thesis was about is like this trope and, and how it, how it shows up today in a, in a completely, uh, sort of corporately colonized landscape where there's nowhere to escape to like everywhere looks the same. How do you do, you know, how does this, how does this trope manifest in a, in a landscape where there's nowhere to escape to. And what you see is that it goes international and, um, and it also goes digital to where the frontier becomes, um, a sort of cyberspace to use an outdated term. Yeah. Um, or, you know, you get something like, uh, into the wild, right. Yeah. Where you're just kind of a caricature. Yeah, of, and you end up, you know, you know, doing more harm than good because you have this ideal of what it means to live truthfully. Right, and it's what's very interesting to me about this trope is how it almost always is represented represented as an escape from some sort of inner, very real, like psychological turmoil. So the first paragraph of on the road is about, uh, I guess Sal is the character's name, uh, about how he's been recently divorced and he feels like everything's dead. And, and, and so he had to hit the road and then Moby Dick, definitely a, 
a relevant book and with this trope, uh, I think refers to the dark, drizzly November in my soul. Uh, and that's sort of what leads to this journey on the sea. Uh, and, and D.H. Lawrence really sort of said everything we're saying in uh, studies in classic American literature, his book of criticism, when he's talking about Whitman. And Whitman sort of, I think, really embodies this trope of just sort of the traveler, you know, just wandering, the wanderer, maybe. Um, anyway, I, I think it's really interesting that this is sort of a an American lit trope. And it's very similar to a, a psychological uh, archetype that uh, a lot of people have written about, but specifically the Jungian uh, uh, psychotherapist and psychologist, Mary Louise von Franz, has a book called uh, The Problem of the Puer Eternus. And the Puer Eternus is, you know, the eternal boy. Uh, and I think that this character, Ellis and Mud and Tom, and even the dad, whose name I can't remember, Senior. are... What is it? Senior. Oh, senior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, are kind of representative of this archetype, this eternal boy. Um, and I, th- maybe I'm going to go a long way around here to, to get to the point, but it seems like so, – so in that book by Von Franz, she basically says the cure for this, you know, for this kind of orientation, this puer eternus – uh, worldview is work is like you know they just need to to commit to some sort of job and do it no matter what it is um, and so it seems like that, yeah, okay that seems plausible but then there's the whole like Marxist interpretation of history right where the the very the very thing that these this type of character is fleeing is that is the type of work that would solve their problem. So uh, I'm thinking about, have, have you ever read uh, Richard Poyer or Poyer? It's like old school criticism, like 1960s, around, around the same time as Machine in the Garden came out. I have not. No. So he's got this, this sort of metaphor he uses to talk about Huckleberry Finn called The Raft and the Shore where the raft is representative of like freedom and the shore is representative of sort of history and economics and just like obligation and, and you might call it reality. And so American writers are always trying to like come up with ways to free their characters from, you know, these institutions of, of, of reality of financial obligation and domestic obligation because that's what makes a story interesting right uh it's something new you have to have something you know to play against that that uh what some people call normal um and so and so in a lot of ways i think nichols is working in this tradition of like the raft and the shore where the river uh, is is emblematic of freedom for these boyish characters and 
the shore is full of obligations and and just things that everyone has to deal with and they are governed by institutions specifically in mud the river authority gets referenced several times yeah and it's never explained Uh, it says oh they passed a law oh it's the law and they don't really ever explain the intricacies of it just sort of right and and that's and that seems intentional because it's just supposed to be like this authority uh or this sort of institution of authority um and so and so you have you have these boyish characters you have them trying to escape sort of history and just live in this forever present of freedom and and like i said von franz says oh you just they just have to get a job they just have to like find something to do no matter what it is and yet like i said the the very things that they're trying to escape is what she's prescribing as the solution uh, anyway uh to bring it full circle or or maybe to take it back to mccarthy last week sutry which i'll talk about on every single episode uh is work works i think in a lot of the same ways and, and i think cornelius sutry is kind of the same archetype um uh, but I won't, I won't spoil it for anyone but uh that book is definitely worth reading with these considerations about history and, and institutional life. Uh, no. Because I think McCarthy has a little bit more courage to, uh, to not conform to the, uh, uh, to the expectations of society. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Another all example. All that to say, raft in the shore. Yeah. In mud. <laughs> Another example of this kind of character is a, uh, Sugar Shane Falco from the replacements. Oh, absolutely. living on a houseboat, uh, throwing around Dude. his his uh, trophy at the bottom of uh, the Potomac or whatever it is. Yeah, it's uh, it's Huckleberry Finn, it's Ishmael, and it's Shane Falco. Yeah, these are the uh, these are the archetypes of our time. Yeah, but the the sort of uh, the imagery of a houseboat fits really well with that. If you have uh, trying to desperately cling to this the freedom that the river can can sort of give them um, but also being tethered to the shore at the same time and, and it's also kind of a, it, of a, it's like mud is where is is where water meets dirt you know <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know if that's intentional or, well, or what's well, going on there but I've thought about that a little bit. i think it's worth talking about um, because mud and there's a whole you know my name is mud type thing or his name mm-hmm. is mud um kind of old saying that goes back to the lincoln assassination i think um dr mud anyway uh i don't know about this i think that's where that saying comes from is the doctor that uh was treating lincoln when he died i guess and he but or maybe no it was i think it might have been the person who was letting john wilkes booth hide in their barn his last name was Mud, so oh. from then on to say like their name is Mud sort of meant, you know, they're they're as bad as this other person who, yeah, you know, whatever. It's probably not true, but um, well, that that sounds very relevant. The 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 names in this in this movie for one. So you know you have Mud, you have Juniper, which is a little interesting. Uh, senior Neckbone. for the dad, um, yeah. but then to go back, this is kind of a thing that Nichols does. Because in shotgun stories, 
you have uh, Michael Shannon and uh, these other two actors playing his brothers, and their names are son, boy, and kid. <laughs> and and the whole plot of that film is that there was a father that had two families, and the three boys come from one of those families, and then he has three boys from another family, and they mm-hmm. like butt heads, and that's where the conflict comes from. Uh, but that kind of interesting. It, you know, their and their personalities sort of come through of like son. So he's like responsible one has the strongest ties to protecting the family's sort of uh, dignity and that sort of stuff. And then boy and kid that are sort of like less mature and more kind of innocent. Uh, so it, it's interesting to think about, you know, mud and, the, you know, even like neck bone. It's just weird. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. a character that's going to be the comedic relief for the most part to be named neck bone. Um, there's uh, yeah there's something to that that i am not picking up on yeah and and, uh something i wanted to talk about because it gets this bigger point i want to make about how he does this kind of southern magical realist sort of thing but it's always like it's like a cynical magical realism i would say so it's like you have all this stuff that's happening that seems like it's otherworldly or supernatural but then it it either gets dashed and is brought to reality or it's sort of like given this spin that makes it like grittier and true to reality. So like Tom being a, an assassin really turns out him being a sharpshooter who like kills all these murders, all these uh, bounty hunter guys. Right. Um, but there's this interesting sort of wrinkle in Tom's relationship with mud that, that I noticed where it's sort of, they have this, father-son relationship even though they both say like they're not father and son but it's this kind of like i think your sort of theory about them being all different stages of the same dude can can yeah. hold this up too where it's almost like like i don't know like mud is born of nature kind of uh sort of like a almost like a greek god story or something mm-hmm. where they say they just found him in the woods and they don't know who his parents were and all that sort of stuff. But then you also have the story about Tom's wife, who he, you know, loved more than most men love women, could love a woman in two lifetimes, and uh, dies in childbirth. And he's been alone ever since. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this, yeah. this weird, these weird connections being made about, beyond just being like, oh, well, that's a metaphor for Mud's really his son. It's a sort of like almost subconscious kind of connection between the two of them. Um, yeah that you know a lot of it goes back to mud having this kind of he seems otherworldly and sort of magical uh and he's very like i wrote a paper about something like this once this isn't the idea from the paper but it was i was writing about what i called magical masculinity that mud kind of has um so for instance juniper doesn't show up so he drinks a bottle of whiskey and moves the boat by himself (laughs) overnight like it's kind of a like a, a feat of strength, kind of this Herculean yeah. thing. Um, and, you know, he's got the he never sleeps in the same place twice, all that sort of stuff. Um, and he just sort of even the first time we see him, he just kind of appears, and he has that great thing. Like his first line is that great thing where he's walking past him, reeling up the fishing rod. He's like, "What do you say, boy?" <laughs> and it's just he's it's just kind of perfect. Um, yeah. So he just has this kind of air of, and at the end he gets shot, but he survives. Right. Right. So like he's like the shirt works or whatever. 
Well, and there's and there's the weird sort of uh, religious thing where he has the crosses on his boots and the the tracks in the sand just kind of disappear all of a sudden. Yeah, which kind of goes back to that, you know, uh, I was with you all along, sort of thing. <laughs> right. Um, I was also, carrying you. Yeah. When he's talking about, uh, I forget King, I think like the the father of the the guy who he's killed right the sort of like texas mafia sort of thing yeah yeah um, and he, he says he, he calls yeah. him old scratch which is like yeah. a very old school kind of name for the devil the devil yeah yeah i i think uh what i said earlier about war i think i'm i'm getting mostly from that well, from, from Tom's shooting spree, but also the kind of spirit of, of those guys, of the Texas Mafia, um, especially the scene where Old Scratch, who, you know, McConaughey's character describes as, you know, pure evil or whatever, uh, and you see him, uh, the old guy, having a meeting with these I guess like hired assassins and he tells them to get in a circle and hold hands and they're going to pray for the death of his son, pray for the death of the man who killed his son. Um, and there's this sincerity to it. It, I mean, like diegetic sincerity, like the character is sincere. Uh, but I think we are supposed to notice the irony of the prayer of praying for death uh, because you're so sad about a death, you know? Uh, and that I think to my mind is, is kind of um, Nichols is calling our attention to the cyclical uh, nature or like, or like the pattern uh, I guess that's maybe an eye for an eye sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's, it's to me, it's indicative of like the, the philosophy of war of, you know, we, everyone thinks God is on their side for, for killing, you know, some sort of arbitrary enemy. And, and this violence has taken place only out of these like misplaced romantic notions that are that are born of of a kind of refusal to grow up and be an adult. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's there's all this boyishness that leads to like real violence, and 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 something we need to talk about is how the women are portrayed because this is this is where this movie gets really murky for me. I I'm, yeah. I don't really know what Nichols is saying. Yeah, well, it, we'll get to that because I think we definitely uh, need to talk about it. Um, but oh, fuck, I forgot what I was going to say right as I started talking. We're uh, talking about war and the old old scratch and the Texas mafia. Yeah, and praying for your enemies to die. Yes, I was going to say it kind of all goes back to this idea of having this. Uh, this this code that you live by that that is unbendable sort of unshakable uh code so for instance when mud's talking about what he did um and how he shot the guy he says well there's things you can get away with in this life and things that you can't 
And so he, he has this very clear delineation between, you know, when he has to take kind of the law into his own hands, that sort of yeah. stuff. And it's interesting because it makes me think of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which mm. is, is very much a movie about being a man with a code. And because that movie is kind of a fairy tale kind of sub, or subversive, perverse kind of parable, being a man with a code works out perfectly. And it goes completely in your favor. Uh, whereas in Mud, because it takes place in a something more akin to the real world, world it uh, having that code and being completely unshakable in it causes a lot of trouble, right? So Mud's only there because he's committed murder because he had a very strict code that he lived by. And the code was basically, don't mess with Juniper, right? Um, so it's interesting to see how... how they run up to, up against so many issues because they have this very strict construction of what the world should look like. Right. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. Uh, but, and that kind of plays into how the women come in too, because, you know, like you're, you're hinting at, it's very kind of problematic about how, how they're portrayed and how what, one of those things is that they're only sort of valuable in the relationship to the, the men in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. So this film would not pass the Bechdel test in any sort of way. Um, but just yeah. just to start with, like, the mother, who's, uh, see, the character's name is Mary Lee, right? And that comes up sort of later when uh, Ellis is telling his dad about his girlfriend. He says, oh, he's got two names just like your mother. <laughs> and, and he kind of means it as a derogatory thing. Um, well, she, she's given a lot and, of the blame. And I think it's important... One of the one of the parts that stood out the most to me is when the parents confront Ellis about stealing the boat, mm-hmm. and the mother, Sarah Paulson, like slaps the father and says something very insulting to him. I can't I can't remember what it is. You're but, a man uh, that's never been in charge of his own life or something like that. Right, right, and then she leaves after she's like, you know, reprimands Ellis and Ellis tries to like justify himself to his dad. And his dad says, I don't care what you do. And, and it's like, it's like he just sort of, uh, ratifies or proves what the mother has just said. Like he doesn't care about his son unless he has the love of his wife or the respect of his wife. So it's like he's not in charge of himself. You know what I'm saying? He yeah. has, he is nothing without this woman. Um, and, and, and so you see, he's very sort of dependent, um, just like she's just accused him of being, um, yeah. And he's been completely dependent because that's their whole livelihood is based on, living on this houseboat and fishing from it. And the right. only and reason they have it is because her father left it to him. And you see, so, so in a, in an easy, you know, an easily sort of categorizable movie, you would have these strong women, right. And, and these boyish men, but the, the mother, Sarah Paulson's character seems to be, uh, I, I think we're supposed to associate her with this sort of suburban apartment life at the end. This is what she has been lobbying for. And so like this 
is what progress looks like, you know, and, and it feels like, it feels like this suburban neighborhood is on some level supposed to be like a paving over or like a repression of the sort of freedom associated with the river, like a literal paving over. I mean, they're standing in a parking lot. Um, and, and we've talked about how, uh, Wendell Berry, you know, always puts like development and progress in quotes. And I think maybe that's a little bit what's happening here where it's like Nichols saying, Oh, this is what progress is. You know, like, Oh, this is the antidote to, to that, uh, uh, unchecked sort of chaotic freedom that these boyish men want. Yeah, this you know this is what the what progress is this is terrible yeah and that's in the the mother catches flack through the whole film for wanting that right and ellis says you know i'm not a townie i can't live like that that sort of stuff so at the end it kind of problematizes when he's you know getting out of the truck and he sees the the girl and they have that little like moment and it's like he has a little smile because i guess he's going to fall madly in love with this new girl now but it's sort of hinting at this idea of like you know in this very suburban very uh you know poorly constructed apartment block life like that's where the women kind of long to be and that's where you'll find them and if you want to be with them you will adopt that kind of lifestyle and you will well i i think on a on a different level though it's like okay let's let's take the suburban apartment life as like a metaphor for kind of modernization uh, of, of, of civil civilization coming uh, progressing, you know, and, and like I said, I think the jokes on us with the music at the end, because we we've seen where sort of freedom gets you, it gets you to a fucking massacre on the river uh, with men trying to, you know, defend women's honor or whatever for, and, and a misplaced venture, you know, because clearly Reese Witherspoon Juniper does not care about mud that much. Um, so, so we've got all that in the background and then we're supposed to, the music suggests we're supposed to feel any sort of shred of, of sentimentality when Ellis sees this girl, I think, I, I think Nichols is kind of winking at us. Like there's been no progress here. He still has the same preposterous romantic ideals when he sees this older girl in the parking lot. And it's just going to be worse. You know, it's just going to be him in this, in the piggly wiggly parking lot. (laughs) Right. Uh, It's just a, a different setting for the same old bullshit and maybe, maybe even worse Yeah, uh, well, you know, for, like, for different reasons. Yeah. Like 14 year old boy horniness will just, it, it's like a gaseous form. It'll just take the shape of whatever container it's put in. So you have Ellis moving from the houseboat to this apartment complex. And like you're saying, like he's hasn't really, well, we can't really tell if he's actually learned anything. Right. Uh, because especially when you think about it in Mud's sort of storyline, it's just sort of been shut off that like Juniper is the bad guy. Like Juniper has turned her back on Mud. 
Yeah. And even when they have their little like moment where they see each other and kind of wave, um, you know, it's kind of, if you're Ellis, if you're, if you're thinking like Ellis, that is supremely unsatisfying. Yeah. Uh, so you could see it being like just setting. And, and the fact that Neckbone's like, well, you know, they, they never found his, his body, right. It's sort of setting it up to keep that hope alive that, you know, there's someone like mud out there who is just, doing it for love and that's the only reason to do anything yeah and, and you see though with uh with mud and tom they sort of go the opposite direction they have you know they sort of come to and they're out in the middle of the river and and it, it, it's shot as like a happy moment and, and they are depicted as like compared to ellis in the film kind of cynical like oh they've been burned by by some women you know by by love um and so i i'm just really i'm i'm really not sure what nichols is is actually getting at um I, you can't tell if like you said if ellis has learned something or have mud and tom learned something um i i Based on, you know, some of the things I've said, I, I think the music is misleading and maybe intentionally misleading, um, to where it feels like a decent happy ending. But if you've actually been paying attention, it's really kind of a pessimistic view that this cycle of violence will continue because these boy, you know, man boys have learned nothing, but, but also, the things that they would have learned are maybe not worth learning. That's the point I'm getting at with the, with the mom and the, the apartment suburban apartment as some sort of emblem of progress. Like maybe maturity is not, is not worth attaining. If this is what, you know, this is what sort of growing up means. Yeah. And and Nichols kind of has, I won't say he has problems with mother characters, but they're they're always kind of skewed a little bit. So, like in Take Shelter, Curtis's mom had, was uh, bipolar, not bipolar, had schizophrenia, right? Yeah. And, and so she's kind of a, a source of anxiety. Um, so in this film, sort of the same kind of thing. Although when she gets to speak for herself, uh, says some things that that make a lot of sense. So like when they're on the trip to to Walmart. And she's explaining it, explaining her side of it to Ellis. And she says, we know, I, you know, I, I deserve this is how she states it. Like I deserve Mm -hmm. to start this new life and be happy and have what I want for once. Right. And it's sort of as the viewer, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But Ellis is very much like, ah, mom, you bitch. Why do you have to sell the houseboat? Or why do you have to let Mm -hmm. the river authority come and tear it down? Um, So it's, there is sort of a uh, kind of irony between the way Ellis is reacting to these things and the way that, you know, if you're the average person, you're, you're going to react to them. Especially even with, uh, you know, his girlfriend, quote unquote, um, who just because she doesn't, it, it's kind of like a funny a lesson on consent, is just because she doesn't directly say, I don't want to be your girlfriend, Ellis just, just assumes and is like, oh, we're together. <laughs> right, um, right so yeah it's in i don't know it's i think 
the way the men in the movie react to the women uh, is there's like a if you're watching the movie correctly and with the kind of I think nudge wink that Nichols is implying that you kind of like what you're talking about mm-hmm. that you're going to say to yourself like these women characters sort of know what they're about and they're, they're not these sort of like you know heartless harpies that you might that the the male characters seem to believe them to be right especially like juniper who with the moment when she kind of disconnects from the whole romantic plan is when ellis calls her and he's like we'll be here at five o'clock come around the corner we'll be on a dirt bike and she's like whoa wait a minute (laughs) this is a little (laughs) ridiculous Um, right which makes a lot of sense grown woman you're not going to run off with two teenage boys on a dirt bike to some island in the middle of the river Yeah, it's like she can feel the the boyishness of it. Yeah. Um, and is like, what what am I doing here? It's like sincere to a fault, to the point that it's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's this movie's kind of frustrating. I, I feel like with Take Shelter, it was like, oh. You know, you just watch it closely and you kind of, you kind of get what's happening. This one is like, there's a lot to think about. He's, he's dealing in a lot of, I mean, it's, it's beautiful sort of filmmaking, cinema, cinematographically. The, if you just are watching it for a narrative, it's pretty cool. You get to see some, some violence. But on a, on a, on another plane, it's frustrating because you're not really sure, at least I'm not really sure what Nichols, maybe he just wants us to think about these things. Uh, but it seems like there's some, there's a lot of ambiguity to deal with. Yeah. There's this kind of like, I'm just going to talk about something that has some ambiguity that I'm interested in. It's snake imagery. Yeah. And so you have this kind of like, you know, you think of snakes, especially in the way that Mud talks about them when he says, like, we were taught to fear them before we even came into this world. And he gives this kind of biblical spin. So it kind of leads you to think about the, you know, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sort of thing. But here you have a Garden of Eden that is all Adams and no Eves. Right. uh, Which is a little interesting. And also the, the way from a story structure standpoint where you have Nichols showing us over and over again the sort of like snake hole the little like water hole with all the snakes in it and it's kind of like a you know Chekhov's gun thing where you're like that's going to be important we've talked way too much about snake bites for that not to be important later on Um, and again it's it's like the whole ordeal with Ellis getting snake bit in mud you know tearing ass on the dirt bike away and that's all that sort that's of stuff. one of the best scenes yeah. it, it is but it's also like completely unnecessary when you think <laughs> about what's happening um and it's just i i don't know it's just thinking about snakes and the fact that mud has the snake tattoo all the way down his arm and he says oh you know so i remember not to get bit that sort of thing um <laughs> it's just sort of thinking about that how often that comes up uh, and, it, you know, it's this kind of natural theme that has all these very human implications of the snake as a symbol of evil or as like this primordial fear that humans are, are sort of born with. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, it's just they're kind of out in an area where 
that's kind of the snake's domain, right? And they've made it into yeah. this kind of magical haven with the boat in the tree and all that sort of stuff. But in doing so, they kind of forget that it has very real dangers in it, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of... Yeah, I want to I think Ebert mentioned the sort of Edenic quality of the island and, uh, and of course, the snakes. Uh, and... I guess it's it's after the snake. Here's another sort of ambiguous thing. Uh, after Ellis, or like as Ellis is recovering from the snake bite, that's when his parents seem to take a a turn for the better. Even though I guess they still end up getting divorced, they kind of get along after this. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I don't. It was sort of like a do it for the kids sort of thing. Stay together for yeah, the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really get that either. Um, it becomes in that moment, it goes from a really nasty sort of hostile divorce to a completely kind of amicable breakup. And then the father at the end is like, you know, mind your mother. This is a big change for her too. Right. He starts sort of defending her to the kid. Um, I, I just I don't know. I feel like there's like some crucial thought I'm just missing uh, with this movie that would that would you know put it all into perspective if I had it. Um, well, let me tell you, like, uh, and this kind of also supports your whole idea that Nichols is kind of playing with our expectations a little bit. And it's because when Mud shows up at the end and he's in Ellis's bedroom and they're having that conversation, and it made me think of this because it was when his his dad said, you know, you can't trust love. You can't believe women when they tell you that they love you, that sort of thing. And so the, Ellis and Mudd are having one of their kind of deep conversations. And he said, you know, you're a good man, Ellis. You find a girl half as good as you, you'll be fine. And he says, well, you're a good man too, Mud." And you think they're going to have this deep, this like a moment where he's like, thanks, kid. But instead yeah. he says, no, I'm not. And as soon as he starts to explain it, the, the, the bounty hunter guy blows a hole in the wall. Right, as if that's the explanation. Yeah, and it, it's yeah. sort of like, it's also like a really big interruption with this kind of spectacular thing that doesn't fit in with all, or fit in at all with everything we've seen up to this point. Um, it's right. just kind of, I had kind of forgotten about that, so when I saw it, when I rewatched the movie, I was like, holy shit. It scared the shit out of me when that happened. It's like a, a real jump scare. Yeah, because you think it's going to be this kind of like wrap everything up in a nice bow and then, you know, mud disappears into the night, that sort of thing. But no, we're going to have a shootout on a houseboat. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think you're definitely right, though, about that. Um, that's startling gunshot as in keeping as like a, an extension of McConaughey's speech, you know, Um and and I I definitely think that we're right to say that this sort of boyishness is we're supposed to see it as leading directly to violence. Um, the way Ellis keeps punching dudes who talk to his girlfriend, quote unquote. Um, here we like- have here we just have the uh, a, a, a bigger like a, a grown up version of that. You know, yeah, and, uh, and like, and, and it film, ends with you know ten people dead or whatever. Yeah. Early in the film, the first time you see Tom, he's shooting snakes with a, a pellet gun. 
Yeah. With yeah. an air rifle, which is, and then it's sort of like direct translation from like a little boyish kind of pursuit to, you know, sniping 10 dudes off a houseboat. Right. This leads to that. It also bolsters the argument that Tom is just an older version of the, uh, of this same character. Yeah. Just a, just a boy on the river with his gun. <laughs> the way God intended. Yeah. Uh, but to sort of tie the movie back to this, uh, these sort of environmental concerns, I think setting is a big part of it. So we've talked a lot about the river, which is a big, a big deal in the film. Right. Um, and it's sort of implied the whole time that living on the river, um, both as a sort of metaphorical, uh, encapsulation of freedom and and you know being on the river is to be free and free of responsibilities and all this sort of stuff but also also sort of physically being on the river and, and fishing from it and uh you know you see uh galen who's michael shannon's character who uh is on the bottom and he like finds muscles and stuff and he sort of ekes out a living doing that but it's not yeah. that big of you know it's not like he's rich he lives in this double wide with his uh his nephew um right. so that uh, environment is sort of it, that natural kind of environment clashes with the town, which is this kind of like ragged, rusty, very rural kind of nothing of a town. Um, and so you see them sort of that the sort of harsh contrast and all of that itself is then contrasted against like the city or thing, you know, images we might have in our mind of like urban environments, um, yeah. which makes both the town and sort of the the more kind of out in the wilderness kind of river portions seem like just out in the middle of nowhere, right? Like as far from civilization as you can be. Um, and it, it's sort of, it's interesting. And, and even like the, the Texas mafia guys who are the very clear villains right down to like, they might as well have had uh, black cowboy hats on, but instead they just had <laughs> yeah. a lot of hair gel. Um, they are very like sort of, kind of urban right they have their big cadillacs that they drive and they have their nice suits and all yeah city slickers yeah and it's just sort of to look at the way that that environment's used and when we're in the environment it's shot so beautifully uh that it kind of i don't know it sort of like makes you fall in love with it in the same way that sort of ellis and mud are in love with it right right you sort of want them to succeed because you're like this is like this is idyllic, right? This look at right, this boat right. tree. That's, it's a hell it's of like a thing. The visual rhetoric is at odds with the with the sort of psychological rhetoric of the film, uh, and and I'm not saying that's unintentional. Like uh, maybe maybe at odds is a is too harsh. Maybe they're juxtaposed with you know with one another. Yeah. Well, you know, like the the boat gets in the tree, and that's sort of the power of nature, and sort of the will of the elements sort of thing that it, it gets I, it up I, into the tree. I was reading that that is a, is an image from uh, Werner Herzog's movie, uh, Aguirre, the wrath of God, where there's a boat in a tree, which I haven't seen it, but uh, I, I'm a, I'm a Werner Herzog fan. <laughs> anyway, I guess it was Ebert saying that that image is straight from that movie. Well, that's interesting. Right. And, and it, you know, even thinking of the title of wrath of God, it's right. Kind of this, right. This wrath. And to now we have to get the boat out of the tree, and now so man's going to exhibit a little bit of dominion over nature. So yeah. you have mud up there with a chainsaw, <laughs> that, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, 
Uh, and they're sort of bringing civilization piece by piece to him so he can reconstruct this boat. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Because I, I think he, people... Yeah, it's we, we talked about the metaphor of the raft and the shore. It's like... The raft if, on the shore. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like uh, he has to bring pieces of the shore uh, in order to escape this uh, island that is supposed to be representative of freedom or supposedly, you know, it's this boyish sort of freedom for, for Neckbone and Ellis, but yet he's getting them to bring him things from the shore. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. And, and just the fact that he's on an Island is sort of like, there's a just shit ton of literary imagery you can get from that. Yeah, so like Robinson Crusoe, Crusoe like Caliban yeah. from Shakespeare, uh, just like countless things. Being Castaway. Yeah, Castaway. Literary classic, Castaway. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to remember the boat because that's sort of, for one, that's how the movie was sold, more or less, if you think about like trailers back when it was, before it came out. The, the image of the boat in the tree was sort of like the, whoa, what's going on here? This is, What's this new McConaughey movie? What's going on? Right, um, right. And in the film, it's sort of, that's the whole impetus for the story starting. And then it kind of, it, you know, to think about it being this kind of, the imagery not lining up with this kind of psychological undertone or the psychological underpinning of the story that's happening. It's the boat being in the tree gets very quickly overshadowed by all of the problems of all of the men kind of piling yes. up to conspire to get the boat out of the tree. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not uh I'm not sure casting wise I I I thought it was interesting that um the thing with with McConaughey's shirt as like a a, uh, a like a shield, like a protector, um, and and there's this whole like trope or, or not trope, but a meme of you know McConaughey always has to take his shirt off in a movie, um, and I didn't know if Nichols is like playing with that or or what the deal with the shirt was. It's kind of, and it's one of those things that. It kind of, like I said, there's this weird like a mingling of this kind of magical realist side and this more like pragmatic side. So, yeah. you know, he loses the shirt when he gets drunk, right? He's like, yo, take it. I don't need it anymore. Hope I die. Very, very mature reaction that he has. Um, but then like when Ellis gets bitten by the snake, he tears it up to tie a tourniquet around his leg and... Uh, you know, when he gets shot, he survives. So I guess implied that the shirt may have protected him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's just like a, I think it, it is kind of funny to think of like, maybe that's just playing with the fact that McConaughey always ended up shirtless. Um, and I don't know if you're like, I saw a thing once I was talking about how he has very short arms. So if you're looking, <laughs> he has very short arms, um, little T-Rex arms. <laughs> 
But, you know, it's just one of those weird, like, talismans that he has that it kind of reflects how much of... Uh, it, you can look at it like Ellis, sort of like Tom says, and be like, oh, you think he's a badass? He has all these, like, witchy little things that protect him, these little talisman, talismanic things. Or you can look at it as, like, he's sort of just a rube and sort of just kind of an idiot and he has all these weird little beliefs among them that him and juniper are meant to be together and they just sort of come back to bite him or just don't do anything right um just like for instance when they meet him and he explains the boots so to them yeah. they're like oh that's a cool boot story but to me i'm like this guy's a jackass he's <laughs> like i bought him from what i would call an indian he's probably mexican <laughs> um <laughs> Told me they turned me into a werewolf, and that didn't happen. What's up with the? Uh, it, it seems like another thing we're supposed to notice is the food. Like they're always just like scarfing down some beanie weenies and stuff. Yeah, even with his hands. Right. It, it's almost like they've they're reduced to like animals uh, on this island, or they're free to be animals or something. There's a uh, there's a, a lot of like weird well not weird a lot of like studies and literature and stuff that talk about the way food is portrayed and yeah. a pretty common thing now is that in poorer areas so like in Appalachian literature southern southern literature of like a new more recently published things um, processed foods are used to denote poverty and you know social turmoil that sort of stuff. So, yeah. like, there's a, a short story by the writer Ron Rash. I can't remember what it's called. It's in a collection called Burning Bright. Maybe it's called Burning Bright. I can't remember, remember the name of it. But it's a, a young boy whose parents are meth addicts, so he's home alone a lot. And all he eats is, like, Lucky Charms and stuff like that. And it's sort of, like, implied that the food reflects this kind of, you know flawed scarred childhood that he's having that he he has no real connection to real food because he has no connection to a real family and like all, yeah. all that sort of stuff so i don't know it's sort of uh yeah i, I think i think that that's kind of that's going on a little bit because you, you have the opposite with like the you know ellis helping his dad sell the fish right the sort of like fresh fish caught from the river and you have to cook right. it and that sort of stuff and it's right after he learns that the that they're gonna get rid of the riverboat or the houseboat. Um, that when he when he freaks out, when Ellis freaks out and just takes off in the middle of the night, that he sort of asks Mud if he can have some of this shitty food he's just brought him. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I, it seems to correspond to his to him alienating himself from his family yeah uh, it's kind know. of funny too of like uh so mud asks for food and ellis and neckbone because they're 14 years years old their immediate response is oh we'll bring him some cans of beanie weenies yeah um when you know in the same movie they take a whole cooler full of fish and just like take <laughs> off with it <laughs> right and he's <laughs> so, got a fire yeah, it's like you could like bring him. He could, they could have brought him some fish. Uh, yeah, but and they bring him like a can of pumpkin. And he makes a joke of like, hard to make a meal out of a can of pumpkin. Um, but yeah, yeah, just the the way he eats, 
both the actual food that he eats and like the physical manner in which he eats it where he like pours the green beans into his mouth and that kind of yeah stuff. yeah yeah it, it, to me that definitely seems t- like a way for Nichols to further um, show their immaturity and their and their lack of rootedness and their alienation from real relationships um, or, or, or any sort of real nurturing because of their refusal to live in reality. And yet, again, and I'll keep coming back to this ambiguity, the reality with which uh, or to which we want them supposedly to, to mature to is not depicted as a reality that anyone would want to mature into. Um, because, because again, it's just, it's just this fucking soulless looking urban, uh, suburban apartment complex where, where this all leads. And, and you see the, the men who have gone through this, you know, uh, end up, uh, just running away at the end. You know, they're on, they're the ones on the boat on the river glorying in the, in the view. Um, so it's just, it's just really frustrating in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is kind of, I don't know. It's like a movie of the movie of a million frustrations. <laughs> yeah. Both in that sense. And then like, if you thought it was going to be a love story, well, it's not. Everybody ends up separated. Uh, yeah. If you thought it was a movie about, you know, like coming of age, it's not because has Ellis really gone anywhere? Like he's, I guess, changed, but we don't know if that's for the better, if he's matured or evolved at all. Um, I don't know. The only character that seems completely kind of comfortable in his kind of masculinity is, is Michael Shannon's character. Weirdly, and, and and neckbone too, and neckbone, yeah. Who who kind of just doesn't seem to know any better, right? Right. But you're right. Time, first time he talks, he's like, "Oh, she's got nice tits." And you're like, "Okay, we know exactly <laughs> that he finds the hustlers, and he's very into them." Right. Um, but like Michael Shannon's character, uh, like his relationship to women is probably not the greatest. Right. We see the the woman storming out of the trailer, and she's like, "You treat a woman like a princess," and neckbone's <laughs> just looking at her boobs. Um, he says, "He says some women are more comfortable are comfortable with those sort of things." Like, now we know you're not. That's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and like, there's that the sort of nice scene, I guess, where he has Ellis come sit by him, and he's like, "You know, don't get my nephew into anything you can't get him out of." That sort of he has the metaphor about like finding the ceiling fan in the river, and he's like, "Sometimes you find things that." that are great and other times you find trash and do you know how to tell the difference and then he's like playing the guitar and then he has that great line where he's like uh, you want to hang out and i forget his friend's name he's like he's gonna come over later we're gonna pump it up <laughs> it's just, he says no and he just goes whatever <laughs> whatever just keep, it turns the amp on and starts playing he's 12 years old yeah um but he seems like that's what he's into and he's just like puts lights on his diving helmet right that sort of stuff <laughs> And he's like, he's trying to to be responsible, but I guess he realizes that like, oh, I'm not really needed, right? He asks Nick Bone, he's like, is there anything you want to tell me? And he's like, I can tell you that this helmet smells like my duck butter. And he just like laughs and he's like, oh, Nick Bone. 
yeah, you see the the fathers or the father figures failing to really exert any authority uh, over these kids. Oh yeah, I mean Ellis just like runs wild, leaves the house pretty much whenever he wants, never seems to suffer any kind of consequences. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Neckbone can do literally whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah. Has his dirt bike, and they're like, uh, you know, riding around on the road with their dirt bike. And we were watching it, and uh, uh, Lavo's like, "How old do you have to be to ride a dirt bike, like on the road?" And I was like, "I don't know." I was like, "In the country, it probably doesn't matter." Yeah, I, I think it's probably like 16. fourteen or fifteen. Really, I just assumed it would just be sixteen, like everything else. And it would have to be like registered. Yeah, I don't know. I do registration while we're talking about it because they're they're sort of like like all the, all the river authority stuff is is sort of interesting. But when Tom leaves the bag of goodies for for mud, one of the things he leaves is a like boat tag. Mm. So uh, Ellis pulls out the bottle of whiskey. Looks like a bottle of Evan Williams, and then and then the the uh, well, was it Evan sticker. Williams or was it early times? It was one of the. It had a black label, so it was like yeah. one of those kind of that sort of looks like Jack Daniels, but isn't. Yeah. Um, and and the the sort of boat registration sticker, or maybe it's like a like a fabricated one or whatever. It's kind of like interesting to think about doing this highly illegal thing, but trying to make it look legit, trying to, mm-hmm. to sort of meet the minimal number of responsibilities to the shore life that you have to. Right. Yeah. That's a good thought. Um, I, I, I tend, I, I want to give this movie the benefit of the doubt mainly because Sam Shepard is in it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like this dude can do whatever he wants or could do whatever he wanted. Um, and it feels like I, I sort of trust Sam Shepard <laughs> as an actor, especially an old man. Like he can do whatever he wants. Why is, why is he in this movie? There's something going on that I'm not picking up on and it's bothersome. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I love the way he acts too, because like when he goes and sees Mud for the first time and he's yelling at him and we get that like, it, it's it's shot really well where he's yelling and then we like zoom out and we get it from uh, Ellis and Neckbone's perspective and Neckbone just goes, man, he's really giving it to him. <laughs> um, it, and I don't know, he just, he's very good at being this sort of like kind of crotchety old man with a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, so for what that's worth. That doesn't help you help you unravel the mystery of the movie no, any better. No. I'll tell you what you Whatever. do is you sleep with a braided rope around your bed. Yeah. Because snakes won't crawl over that. Cool. And then that'll then you'll dream what the movie's about. Oh <laughs> uh, well, whatever it is, it's worth watching uh, and whatever. worth thinking about. And it's kind of nice having to wrestle with a movie like this. Yeah. Because I think, I think we have more than enough or we've talked about more than enough to kind of like justify including it. Um, but you know, it is, it's, it's weird. It doesn't, it, it doesn't immediately reveal those kinds of things. Like you have to think about it and sort of like pay attention beyond just, it, it's easy to fall into like 
the love story element, right? But that's yeah. you're missing most of the picture when you do that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's intentional on Nichols's part to tell a tell a love story so sideways that it's not even really a love story. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, it's well done, right? Yeah. And I need to watch yeah. his other movies so I can see if he kept up the good work or not. I saw Midnight Special, uh, but I don't remember anything about it. I think I was maybe drinking when I watched it. I was going to say that that's not good that you don't remember anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll definitely give that one another look-see, though. And he's not doing, like, he, he did Midnight Special Loving, like, in the same year. And according to Wikipedia, his next project is Alien Nation, which is like a remake of a TV show. Uh, Weird. Or I guess like a film adaptation of that. T- I don't know. It's it's going to be strange. But, you know, I'll watch it. I'm a fan of his. I think he's yeah. interesting. That's all I got. <laughs> uh, I mean, all right. I mean, yeah, there's... I don't know. There's not really... I'm trying to think if there's anything we, we forgot to touch on. Uh, I can't really think of much. I mean... Yeah, I think we covered a lot of it. We kind of yeah got to the beanie weenies and everything. Fast. Yeah, um, all the way down to the beanie weenies. <laughs> um, you stare long enough into a can of beanie weenies, it starts to stare back. Yeah, see the own darkness in your own beans and weenies. <laughs> beans and weenies. Uh, uh, well, shit. I guess is there anything else that we need to <laughs> talk about? I don't think so. What are we doing next week? Uh, so next week, well, first off, I need to mention this, and hopefully I'll hear this later and it'll remind me because I, I guess I could write it down too. We need to do Into the Wild at some point. Oh, yeah. Because that yeah, came yeah. up. And back when we like started this podcast, we mentioned that as like, oh, that's one we'll, we'll do early on, and then it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's been it's been long enough since we did anything like that. I think Captain Fantastic was in some ways has some similar themes, but, uh, yeah. yeah, let's, let's do that one at some point. I just read a, that's John Krakauer, right? Yeah. I just read, uh, his book about the Mormon church. Oh, under uh, the banner of heaven. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Have I've you read that? read that one? Yeah. It's, uh, something else. Like it's, I'm, it's, I'm fascinated by Mormons. I'll just say, uh, yeah, so. it, it, that book reminded me, it gave me the same feeling as that, uh, Lawrence Wright book on uh, Scientology going clear. Yeah, I think there was an HBO documentary made out of it. But, but I haven't read the book. It, it, both of those, and I know Scientology and Mormonism get compared sometimes. Uh, but honestly, the the way those books hit you is that you kind of think that maybe your views on mormonism and scientology are maybe a little bit unfair and over the top and then you read these books about their history and you're like oh no it wasn't radical enough these things are way more fucked up than i thought oh yeah and and cracker does a really good job of sort of like couching it a little bit and saying that like any religion that is founded in modern times is going to be under way more scrutiny, right? And and we're going to be way more aware of things like what ha- what he describes in the book happening. Um, so that sort of makes it all, it gives it all an extra tinge of being like especially crazy, quote unquote. Right. 
Um, But just thinking the way he describes it is like the true sort of purely American religion. And then the book sort of plays out and sort of at the end of it, I was like, yeah, it is. That's kind of the most American religion. Yeah. If you're, if you're interested in that, there's a a book by Harold Bloom called the American religion. That's all about Mormonism. And he cites it in in that uh, a few times. Oh, that's probably where I heard about it. Yeah. And, and, but still like that, I bought that book for like a dollar at a thrift store and I was like, yeah, I'll check this out. And then I read the first couple chapters and I was like, I'm going to finish this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I recall, it sort of, uh, switches back and forth between chapters between like history of Mormon church and a particular murder that yes. it committed by yeah. a Mormon. Yeah. The, the two brothers who, uh, yeah. And, uh, it, it's to sort of like tie it to the podcast a little bit. Um, the, the way it talks about how Mormon belief or just like the Mormons in general in a physical sense came to sort of be so, so identifiable with the American uh, West and the Southwest mm. to the point where it's like whole swaths of that part of the country are just like predominantly Mormon or, you know, a high mm. percentage of Mormon or just like Mormon at all. Right. I mean, in my high school, we had one girl who was Mormon <laughs> and we were like, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. But, but then you learn about like how hard they proselytize and all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, I recommend that, but we'll start doing this at the end of podcast books. We recommend. Yeah. <laughs> it so has nothing to do. With, yes. Yeah. It has nothing to do with uh, what we just talked about, but under the banner right. of heaven, by John Krakow. Um, and we'll have to do into the wild at some point, but next week what we're going to be doing um, is, and we, we sort of debated on whether or not to call this another, um, another uh, author theory, anthrop- anthropocene. What, what the fuck do we call this? Uh, Anthropocene's auteur theory, maybe? Is that what we... <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, um, <laughs> oh, oh, damn it. I have to look at it. It's probably as simple as that, but for some reason I cannot, for the life of me, think of what it is. Had a the, the auteur thing. Yeah, it's just Anthropocene and auteur theory. Okay, never mind. Crisis averted. We're, we're going to Anthropocene's do... Anthropocene's autistic theory. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, so... We're going to be doing our fourth uh, sort of uh, induction into this pantheon. Um, so the first one was Clint Eastwood. The second one was uh, Bong Joon-ho. The third one was Godfrey Reggio. And sadly, we could have kept up the uh, sort of theme of one we're not a fan of, one we're a fan of, one we're not a fan of. Or I guess we kind of did two back-to-back that we're fans of. So it's kind yeah. of a sandwich of you know, with shit bread that we're going to be talking about. Uh, But we're going to be talking about the films of uh, one Peter Berg. Specifically, the Bergman, specifically uh, Deepwater Horizon. And then also probably like Patriot State Lone Survivor, the whole Marky Mark trilogy, even though now he's made four movies, I guess, with, with Marky Mark. Um, also did Battleship and The Kingdom, which I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about because that movie is buck wild crazy. <laughs> um, but Peter Berg, who sort of like Clint Eastwood, has become a very big like post 9-11 patriotic filmmaker. Yeah, he's like, oh, you need a, a movie churned out about a national tragedy with a bunch of American flowers. 
Flags in it. I'm your guy. And Marky Mark. You'll do. He's a he's a passable star. Yeah, and you know he's willing to do all the like uh, Navy SEAL training to to yeah. be all buff yeah. and learn how to carry a gun correctly, that sort of stuff. Uh, so we'll be talking about some Peter Berg movies. Um, I'm looking forward to it because I've only seen like a couple of them, so I'm gonna have. I've never to, seen any of them. I've sort of learned from the Clint Eastwood episode that I sort of enjoy watching these like movies that I think are kind of shitty and, yeah. and sort of seeing kind of how the other half lives a little bit. <laughs> well, they're, they're kind of, in some ways they're easier to talk about. Oh yeah. Because we have with mud, we we're both really big fans of it and there's a lot of stuff to talk about and there's a lot of stuff that's sort of like, we can't fully decipher. Right. Um, but with these movies is sort of like, shit we want to talk about per minute is like through the roof right i still like i just want to we could we could go back and do a whole episode maybe i'll do an uh anthropo short on uh on how fucked up clint eastwood's relationship to christianity is like in especially in gran torino it's like he's got this project to invert the philosophy of like nonviolence. Um, it's fucking crazy the way he is like talking to this uh, priest or preacher, whoever it is, who's like 15 years old or whatever. Anyway, there's a lot, lot to hate. 15 year old priest. Because, it's like an onion headline. 15 year old priest molests himself. <laughs> Did you watch that uh, Onion video I sent you of the the Trump supporter who changed his mind after he read 800 pages of feminist queer theory? I'd seen that headline before, but yeah, that's we're just going to talk about like text. Donald Trump does not tell the truth. You know who does tell the truth? Judith Butler. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, next week we're talking about Peter Berg. Um, uh, we'll mention Anthropus Shorts. So our first short is available now. It's a, I, I got interested, uh, and wrote 500 or not 500. I wrote five pages about greenways and then read it and then put some music over it. So that's available now as well. Um, so check that out. We're available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Apple podcasts, so on and so forth. Follow us at Anthropod tweets. Listen to us weekly. Love us. <laughs> Bring us into your heart. Uh, I've got no sort of clever sign off or anything. Okay. <laughs>